previously on Two Star, Two Trek. He could be the plane. <laughs> I Honestly, let's go. Load up. They could go full, like, Knight Rider with it. Get in, boys! <laughs> we got Nazis to shoot down. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Although, now I'm having really, uh, now I want to see him as, like, Thomas the Tank Engine or something. That's going to be my nightmare. <laughs> oh, it's just like his face on top of like the front of a train engine. Yeah, I'm horrified. Oh, no. no and no. he is the train engine. Think about that. I don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Death Star. Greetings, friends and fellow Trekkies. Welcome to Two Star Two Trek. We are rounding out our time with Deep Space Nine, and tonight we will be discussing In Purgatory's Shadow and By Inferno's Light, uh, which were episodes 14 and 15 of season 5, episodes 112 and 13 overall, if you're nasty. <laughs> and we are nasty. We've got a full group of fine and fabulous folks here with us tonight. We are joined by Dylan, Forrest, and Katie. Dylan, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing all right. I getting over a migraine earlier this week, but uh, today's been pretty pretty fabulous because I just haven't had a migraine. So nice. That's a great way to start the weekend. Forrest, how are you doing this evening? Doing all right. I need one of Bashir's hypos for my back and just to stare longingly into his eyes, but that'd be a bonus, but I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> Fantastic. And Katie, how are you doing this evening as well? Is this a seniors podcast? Did I get put in the wrong group with headaches and backaches? Like, what's happening? I'm doing well. I mean, we already had to reschedule once because my body was like, this vaccine is trying to hurt me. I need to record later. Yeah. I spoke with a lot of authority there, but I'm pretty sure we rescheduled last night because of me. So I am in the right group, um, but I'm very excited to be here and that we all seem to be puzzle pieced back together, at least enough to talk about the Hannah Montana, Julian Bashir, uh, fun time. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you never see him in the same place. That's how they do it. That's how they do That's it. That's how they do it. <laughs> so these two episodes really cool because it's a lot of fun Deep Space Nine shenanigans, a lot of big overarching things happening in the Alpha Quadrant. You know, you get the mention of like the Kittimer Accords, you get a bunch of Romulan warships, you get a bunch of Klingon warships. And then the second episode is just a bunch of Klingon honor, which we honor, honor, honor. know and love on this show. We do stand honor. We do, <laughs> yes, we stand honor on this show. So, uh, Caitlin, why don't you take us through the first episode? I mean, it starts, they, they receive some transmissions, and it's coded, and it's in Cardassian, and it appears to be some kind of Cardassian code, and they're like, well, we have... One guy, you know, a, a, a humble tailor, you could say, who could maybe <laughs> know what this is. And, and Garrick's like, oh yeah, this is like nonsense, like, you know, laundry lists of nothing, and you guys should probably just ignore it. Which immediately means that it's not something you should just ignore. It's definitely something important. And so 
you know, I think it's, is it Julian that figures it out right away that, like, Garrick's definitely lying? And yes. I, and we've, you know, again, Julian with an asterisk next to it. Garrick says, oh yeah, uh, and Abrantain is, is definitely alive because there's this message that's been sent out that just says, alive. And <laughs> it's, you know, it's definitely him and I'm going to the Gamma Quadrant and I'm going to rescue him because that means that maybe more of our fleet is secretly alive. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the thing. And so, of course, like, immediately, you know, Cisco at all is like, no, you're obviously not going by yourself, so, like, we're gonna have to send a chaperone with you. <laughs> and that's uh, the beginning of the, the Worf Garrick uh, road trip. Yes, oh. it's very great. And I do want to state, because I'm a nerd and I love me some crisp, clean Star Trek uniforms, but uh, this is the first episode in Deep Space Nine where they transition to the gray shoulder pads with the black jumpsuit and then the colored tunic underneath. Mm -hmm. And that actually... It was this episode? Is it yeah. It, very, it was yep. definitely this one. And that is actually very important to the plot, as we have already mentioned. So, everybody's got fancy new clothes. Well, I'm, and I'm, I'm sure that Garrick had some, uh, some input, perhaps, in the design of those. Um, as, a plain, <laughs> as a plain and simple tailor, he would be interested uh, in doing that. I don't think it's the first episode because there's that they make that funny reference to them a couple of episodes back, and that kind of gives the timing of the soon-to-be Bashir reveal of this episode. I wanted to say I thought there was the maybe it was the episode where Bajor almost joined the Federation. Well, no, because the episode before it, this, I don't think this was the first. It was it was around this time. It was within the same like month or so, but like yeah, it might have not been. I don't. I just like them. They're fancy. Yeah, they, I like the gray They are shoulders. fancy. They're, they're very like fancy. The they're, they're good uniforms. And yes. it's it's definitely one of those, you know, neat neat shifts and neat fun uh, kind of vision or visual changes because Voyager is going to be off in the Delta Quadrant or is off in the Delta Quadrant with the same uniform set so uh, that the, the, the DS9 had um, beforehand. So giving them a little update Nice little update, make them look different. You like that? Well, and, and Forrest, I don't know if maybe you have the answers to this, or if this is just something that isn't commented on. But the the shift from the blue to the like teal, like that murky sea for science, green science. Do yeah. we know like was there any rationale for that, or is that just you know like a color choice that was made along the way, and everyone just kind of just doesn't acknowledge it? I don't know. That's a great question because you can even see. That, you know, even if you look through the different, the blue is the most inconsistent. So, like, we just watch um, Troubles and Tribulations, which is the great time travel show where the where they notably take a moment to explain why all the colors are different. Exactly. Yeah. And the and the blue, the science medical blue in the original series was so much brighter. It was just this really bright in your face blue. And then it went yeah. a little darker in TNG, and then it even slid a little bit. It slides green, right, in here, almost, yeah. you know, like the Bajoran engineers wear green in, uh, yeah. uh, like, Rom wears green for uh, once he's got the engineer job. Um, but I don't know why that color slipped. I think is probably, it might have been green, it might have been the green-blue screens. They had that trouble with Jerry Ryan and her, uh, her various... Cat suits, for lack of a better term, in Voyager, where they had her in a blue one once. They're like, "Oh no, this is a mistake." Oops. So <laughs> it might have been just to slide, try to slide out of the production 
colors. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, especially because like blue screen was more common in the late not like mid to late nineties, right? right? More so than the the bright greens, lime green screens we see today. Yeah, I mm-hmm. always remembered um, like the behind the scenes featurette on uh, Independence Day, and that's all blue screen. It's mm-hmm. very, very weird because now everything's Dylan. Well, now everything's know? using that like Mandalorian gigantic mega horseshoe technology, <laughs> right? Dylan, do you know why they switched from blue to green? I know you know, like we're getting into like film history here, but you know that stuff, so I want to know. <laughs> uh, the The main reason it's just that green is was less prevalent than blue. I mean, blue shows up in a lot of places; it causes a lot of problems. Uh, I, there's multiple like news, comedy, movies, and TV shows that do jokes about. Like uh, she's in a blue dress, and so like it it disappears off of her and stuff like that. Green, that color shade of green just doesn't show up a whole lot. And also, when you're m- moving into the superhero film as a genre, getting very very popular, a lot of those characters wear blue. Very few wear lime green. That's where a lot of special effects money goes. So it makes a lot of sense to shift that way too. Um, but it also you still use blue screens in certain situations. Um, it, it helps hide a lot of stuff. It's less less light bounces off the blue than is going to bounce off the green, which is a good and a bad thing. Um, it's it's good in dark situations. You don't want that light bouncing off of that and coming back and hitting your actors. Um, it, it can also taint the light, too. It'll make the light green, um, which can cause problems. But in, in television, once they start to switch to using more CG, then you are going to have to change that color cuz if it's the if it's the wrong blue i mean it's a nightmare right right and this is this era of deep space 9 is when they start transitioning into um more cg heavy stuff and things like that um not specifically like with actors against it a lot of it is just like you know renderings of the station and ships and things like that but they're definitely getting better at it because, like, the first couple episodes where they used CG was just... That last one I did with you guys. Rough. Oh, man. The <laughs> yeah. dimensions were so <laughs> bad. Right, right. But, like, how, what about the CG in this one? Like, I thought, you know, when you have just DS9 sitting in the center of all of these ships, like, everywhere, filling every inch of the screen, like, at that point, they're just, like, showing off, right? <laughs> Like, they just want to put as much money on the screen as possible. So, um, but yeah, anyway, back onto the plot and things like that. Uh, Garrick and Worf go on a little road trip to the Gamma Quadrant, and then everybody on the station itself is starting to play politics a little, trying to figure out, oh, what's going on? Like, is there an invasion coming? We, I mean, we don't like invasions. But uh, it, it is it is neat to, I mean, not that I could, uh, like, we could have a podcast called Talk About Garrick, and I could talk about Garrick, you know, all day, every day. Um, but I really appreciate about this episode, and this is true of a, a lot of the two-parters, you can tell that they really build out the, you know, the, the, the talk, the people, the connections there, and like, you, I don't think you get that awesome scene with Garrick and Worf going at each other in the freaking runabout in, you know, in a lot of different, you don't get that in a lot of, you know, just standard 45, 40 minute episodes. So uh, being able right. to enjoy 
this the the space road trip uh, is pretty nice as they're you know kind of explore. You know, Garrick's got that awesome line about uh, uh, lying like any skill must be practiced, it's, and he's just <laughs> tormenting Worf, and Worf is clearly so sick of Garrick just ex- in his entire existence. But you know, it's interesting how Garrick can still manipulate Worf in his sense of honor. And like, oh, well, you know, you could turn around and be a coward, or you could go through the nebula and keep looking like an honorable good boy. And Worf is like, oh, I'm an honorable good boy. So we're going to do that. It's a really neat um, just back and forth there. And, you know, back on the station, meanwhile, our favorite other Cardassian is hanging out. Uh, and uh, Gold Ducat is causing trouble, which, Katie, I think we were talking about some of <laughs> what Ducat was up to earlier. And uh, it's always great to see him torment everybody, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Gold Ducat's always there for selfish reasons that he portrays as there for other people. So he shows up to visit his daughter, who, of course, Garrick, being the only other Cardassian living on the station, notices, and they start having some sort of courtship. Neither of them will admit that they're flirting. Also, Zial's got to be half his age, so that's... Yeah, it, it's gross. It's an odd pairing, because it comes off as, as like, very platonic, because Garrick is so incredibly queer-coded, and she's so oblivious to it, <laughs> and, like, she kind of just wants this connection with, like, another person, but... She keeps reaching out to these people that for, like, one reason or another, like, you know, being a sociopath or being, you know, (laughs) big ol' homosexual, like, are inaccessible to her in some way. Right. And that's kind of a recurring theme with Cial, but, like, watching the two of them together, I don't know how those scenes were originally, like, the intent behind how they were written, but they come across as so stilted and awkward, and in a way it's, like, kind of charming, but Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, like, you're right, she... She definitely is, like, at least 15 years younger than him, if yeah. not more. Yeah. Right. And, and, yeah, she won't accept him as just, like, her gay best friend, because that's clearly clearly what he is. Like, he right. he, he loves Julian, and he kind of has a side thing for Odo. But she, I don't know, she's so desperate to make a connection, because she was desperate to make that connection with Kira for her Bajoran half. So maybe this is just throwing that to Garrick as a, oh, you're a Cardassian I have to love you. But it's also great because it's just a thorn right in her father's side. Gold Ducat hates Garrick, and naturally, the princess falls for the villain And in that storyline. And just watching Ducat having to deal with that, place blame, storm through the promenade, is just, you know, Gold Ducat. Classic. <laughs> right. I love Gold Ducat. He is probably my favorite villain. Yeah, I really do like him too, and I know that it gets darker and twistier as it goes on, but like, this is peak, like I really like a broken man. I fall into that trope pretty easily, and he is a broken, angry man, and funny and witty and sharp, and just Well, and he's such a classic example of the the villain who's pretty sure that he's the good guy. Oh, yeah. And that he's making honorable choices yeah. that are just unpopular. Right. And he's he holds on to that delusion for a very long time. I really enjoy that they have the scenes of him explaining to the Cardassian people that they're a part of the Dominion now. I thought it was very cool mm-hmm. because it's uh, it is like a transition of power. Um, 
And as we've recently seen in the United States, those can be real interesting. Um, and, and like pushing, pushing like people in a certain direction. But like then when you, when you look at the character and you meet the guy, it's like, oh, this, this dude is a protagonist in his own mind in, in a terrifying way. Um, and it's just fun. It's a fun character development. The way they place his daughter in the scenario is cool <laughs> because he's still choosing himself over her, which is gross. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is. And this is, yeah, this is like the end of Ducat, the guy you kind of like to hang out with. Because, like, the between, you know, fourth into fifth season, he's rogue, steals a bird of prey, shooting down Klingons, helping people out. And you're like, oh, this guy. Okay. And then just the heel turn. He's the perfect, you know, the perfect, like, uh, I'm going to, it's like, oh, I'm only, I'm going to he- be here to help out and do this and so on and so on. But really, you know, his betrayal of no one that he probably thought of as a friend or a, a colleague, but even his own daughter at the end, he's just like, nope, back, I'm back on my bullshit. <laughs> yeah, he seems very uh, self-absorbed and self-interested. Everything he does is, oh, it's for Cardassia. He doesn't mean that, like, at all. I'm currently re-watching the first season of Mindhunter, and there's a a part where they they recruit this professor of psychology and she's been working on a book about like nonviolent sociopaths and right. she makes a quip about how how could anybody become president who's not a sociopath and like that's it's Goldicott. like that's just who I see <laughs> I think I could see Holden going in and interviewing this guy about why he's so terrible and it's just yeah, I don't know yeah and he he just oh I'm not terrible like I'm the best ever. Well, like, and he and just isn't spin. this the episode where like he immediately brags that they're making a statue of him, like <laughs> yeah. outside the city square? Why or whatever. wouldn't they? I'm making the right decisions for all of you. Like I know what's <laughs> yeah, best. Right. Like, trust me. I deserve this. <laughs> right. No, Ducat is so interesting. And one thing we keep coming back to, Caitlin and I, is, and this is kind of explored with uh, ZL and everything like that is his relationship with Kira because Ducat and Kira is just like, it gets progressively weirder. as it goes <sighs> So I don't like, it, I think it, it comes off also as like how Zial and Garrick interact with each well, other. Well, he's living in this like fanfic AU of his own making where despite their circumstances, they formed an allyship together and she saw the light about how he's really a good guy and they're able to build this relationship. And like, she's kind of, you know, Kira at times has played into it a little bit and like for their own survival usually, but like the episode where they were stuck on the planet together and she pulled a stick out of his butt, literally like (laughs) he clearly interpreted those, those events very differently than she did. And because I think he made, that drastic personal choice to to not kill his daughter in that episode. I think he there's like some lizard brain part of him that like connects that to Kira, that yeah. protectiveness and that noble act that he saw himself make. Like he he associates her with that. He associates her with like this good version of himself that doesn't really exist. Right. Is it Star Trek to have the character swing back this other dir- like this to where he was basically um very i mean again i'm thinking about 
Star Trek overall and the original Gene Roddenberry vision. But to have this character come back and be this way, like, I think it's it's better storytelling. It's more compelling storytelling and interesting and all. But is it original Gene Roddenberry Star Trek character to have somebody swing back to this a pretty evil despot war warmonger? I think to, like have a moment of redemption and then like revert. Yeah. I mean, I think you could kind of like you see you see echoes of that in Khan, I think. Because like Khan at the very beginning, you know, when they find the ship, is very like, oh, I've I've awoken from this slumber, like what's going on? Like, I don't think Khan was like maligned at the beginning of it. And then he immediately like quickly turns. It's not a slow burn. I, you don't think he's the puppeteer is. the whole time? Because, like, I think Khan is, like... I, I think he is. He's got the, that's his just... finger on the button. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. he's waiting for the opportunity. I think where you would see maybe more of a a turn for him where he's, where he's, like, almost in hibernation where he's, like, caring for his Alpha Seti sluts and, like, then, you know, many years later, he has to deal with Kirk and Co. again and, like, he immediately reverts back to his his conning Conways, and that is his own undoing. I mean, very similar to to Dukat in that way, yeah. because his obsessiveness with this one thing that he really, really wants to do comes at the expense of the people he claims to care about. Right. Well, and I think the thing with Dukat, honestly, just overall, is it's the first like real villain in Star Trek. You know, you and. And I think it's it's part of the nature of Deep Space Nine as a whole, um, because Deep Space Nine is so heavily serialized. You know, you can't watch them out of order. You can't just be like, oh, Star Trek's on. What's happening this week? It doesn't like when those kind of episodes where it's just one off, one off, one off, one off don't really lend themselves to like traditional villains that we would think of, you know, like Magneto, Doc Ock, like. <laughs> It it doesn't fit that mold, whereas DS9 is, like, the only one that kind of really fits that. And, I mean, you even see that um, further with, like, some of the more modern Trek, like uh, Discovery and Picard. They are more focused on, like, one-season arcs than, like, an overall, like, seven, six-season storyline. And it just makes me curious because, like, I don't know, and this is just, like, a thing... I have a problem struggling with watching television as a whole is you get picked up for like two seasons. Like you sign a season deal with, you know, whatever network, right? You get two seasons and then how do you keep the train going? You know, like how do you go, okay, we have all of these parts from these first two seasons. How do we get to season seven? What if we get canceled in season three? Like how, how do you play that game? Um, so you know how the good place is really, really good, right? So it is. It's incredibly. They, good. they knew when it was going to end. Um, I, I think I have a huge problem with the television as a format, and the reason that I have this huge problem is you're writing to get another season because, like, it's your job. And so, if you're a content creator, like, and and you work in film television whatever it is like it's contract work you're you're moving from contract to contract and if you don't have that next contract secured you don't get paid anymore and so like yeah, you don't get you don't get food you don't get you don't food yeah, yeah yeah so the only reason to like you you just want another season and at a certain point no matter what people lose interest in 
whatever world story you've created. And so like those people are going to fall off. And the only people that are going to stay are your really hardcore people. And at a certain point, those people just want to eat fan service like it's cookie dough ice cream. And there's nothing See, wrong supernatural. with that. Yeah. 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 Like Supernatural is like, what, 13 seasons? Should have ended after five. It, that was when the story was supposed to end. That was when the story end. was supposed to end. And and if you give these people permission to keep going, they're going to keep putting food on their table. And I completely understand that. And like part of the uh, – did, did Picard or Discovery, were they – released episode by episode like week to week or did they either uh-huh. get dropped yes. all at once Would that, no it's all week to week that's very cool if they were and like a bulk season that drops all at once having a single storyline that covers a season makes sense because of the new like binge watching strategy but that doesn't apply here right in a 30 year old television show in a 30 year old television show yeah it, it's it's very cool when a television show has an arc that's predetermined and they have the seasons to do the arc properly. I think that even this Star Trek television show probably had an arc that they had envisioned at the beginning and they they were they there are filler episodes. They they do stretch things out and make things take longer in order to fill in those gaps to eventually get to it. And Star Trek is a great like world to build that sort of show in. And I just wish that we had less of that and also like more of the good place where like, hey, I have a four season television show and I have the idea. I've created these other very successful television shows. So you're going to give it to me or I'm going to walk and that should happen. Right. But again, how do you get new content creators in that world too? Right. And that's like. I mean, unless you're like a David Lynch and you're like, I'm doing Twin Peaks The Return. What's it about? Fuck you. You don't get to ask me that. Here's 12 episodes. (laughs) Right. Yeah, but the thing is, like, not everyone's David Lynch. Not everyone's walking around with that big dick, you know, Laura Dern Cow energy. Hey, hey, bring that monkey in this room and set the camera up over there. And just start rolling. (laughs) Why? Fuck you. (laughs) Right. And it's just, it's interesting to see Ducat now, because one thing that we brought up when we recorded our episode for Emissary is they like Ducat's in that episode. Mm -hmm. He is in episode one. That's true. And like, now we are like five seasons deep going. I mean, we know it goes to seven. We've seen different reality versions of Gul Ducat. We've seen past versions of Gul Ducat. We've seen, you know, who he is to different people. And it's, it's given, I think, you know, it's a credit to, to Mark Alimo and the work that he brings to the character. I mean, we've even talked about his physicality of Ducat, you know, telling you so much of who he is in the past that, you know, the writers really saw what he could do and, and gave him the opportunities to make that character into something else, which, you know, again, is a, a great little hybrid thing that happened along the way but it's i i don't know it's hard to tell if that was his journey the whole time right and that's just that that is the thing that like it's it's that scene from knives out like you know it compels me it makes no damn sense but it compels me because <laughs> like you know when when he shows up on day one of like i'm here for my brand new job star trek deep space nine episode one like zl wasn't in the cards no right like and now we have like this grand arc with Zial and Garrick and Ducat and Kira and just all of these pieces playing together. And it's so good to see because I mean, I can't think of like a modern show 
that I've watched that like hits these same high notes. But that is neither here nor there. Let's get to the meat and potatoes of this episode. The thing that everybody has been wanting to discuss, we've been waiting on bated breath to talk about, Julian Bashir's five o'clock shadow. Because mm. Give it to me. <laughs> Let me tell you, we kind of spoiled it um, with the Hannah Montana of it all, but Worf and Garrett get captured, and they are in a Jim Hadar prison planet, and so is Julian Bashir, but like, Julian Bashir is also back on Deep Space Nine. Well, so. and you also find the, the Hannah Montana Martok. Right, right. General Martok is there. That's as well. that's the big thing at first. You know, that's the they think, oh, that's the big reveal. But then you yeah. find out that they've been kicking poor Julian around for about a month. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, and he's wearing the old uniforms. Mm-hmm. He's wearing the old uniform, which is and Katie. I know, Katie. I know you have lots of feelings about Julian Bashir. Oh, deep in multitudes of feelings, but <laughs> I think it's kind of surprising that this changeling who's back on DS9 with everyone could assimilate so well. I mean, uh, O'Brien is his best friend. They play darts together. They drink together. And Odo's pretty quick about picking up changeling cues, too. We saw that when they, he was back on Earth for the New Orleans extravaganza. And no one, no one picked it up. And no one noticed Bashir was gone, guys. That's sad. Yeah. <laughs> I literally turned to Ryan because it had been a while since I'd seen this one. And I, like, I remember like as we were watching, you know, that, that he shows up, but I couldn't remember the context at first. And I looked at Ryan after he showed up and like Garrett just starts talking to him like, oh, great, my friend's here. Now I can just like, bounce <laughs> these ideas off of him. I turned to Ryan and I was like, it's pretty messed up that he was gone for a month and A, nobody noticed and B, no one who's here now seems to like care that that had a huge impact on him at all. No, there was we're no just gonna, like... We're just gonna blow past that. There's no like, oh my god, Julian, you're here. Are you alright? Like, what's been going on? They're like, oh, that's new. So like, you got taken <laughs> a month ago at a symposium? Bro, that sucks. Okay, so <laughs> let's figure this out then. What is happening? Julian deserves deserves it. <laughs> And and that passage of time and whatnot of of Julian, they do the same thing to O'Brien in O'Brien's seasonally massive yeah. trauma. Mm. It's like, oh, you spent twenty, <laughs> you spent twenty years in mind prison. Cool. Next, you're gonna, yeah, this is gonna be fine next episode. So it's 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 uh, but it's such a fun you know reveal. Oh, he's he's coming out of isolation. Oh, who is it? It's a friend. It's it's our good friend, the doctor. Starfleet has the greatest psychologists, like, <laughs> and psychiatrists right. ever. They just, like, oh, you have trauma? It's gone now. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like... uh, I would also say, like, I hope that maybe he he was at the conference and, like, it was a long conference. Like, he was supposed to be gone. Maybe he was at the conference for a while and he's only been in prison for, like, a week or something and not... Four weeks. Yeah, right. Not a space month. <laughs> Not a space month. Just like, it was like a one week, like, oh, there's a symposium, there's a dinner every night, there's a gala, like, yeah. it's one of those conferences. He had, like, a good time. There were farmer reps there. <laughs> space farmer reps. Yeah, they, and then they, they do make the comment, like, I wonder what the other Bashir's doing right now. And then they cut to that motherfucker bringing everyone sandwiches. <laughs> 
That's why no one figured it out. Right. He was over here bringing free lunch. He was like, I just ordered out from the deli, uh, the replicator, whatever. You know, you guys cool? Like, hey, you know, get a little snacky, saving yourselves from the Dominion. Oh, okay, here you go, guys. <laughs> like, it is so fun how you. DS9 plays with food in general. Like, they have, there's that great Quark Garrick scene uh, about root beer. And who could turn root beer into a, you know, a philosophical <laughs> discussion about the human soul, except for Quark and Garrick? But yeah, you know, oh, what you doing? Oh, no, he's showing up with sandwiches, playing darts, you know, smiling. What if the changeling just, like, did a bunch of, like, just inconsequential shit? To fuck with Bashir, like, right? Because like stuff around in his apartment. Yeah, like, like like just moved stuff around in his apartment. Because at one point he says to O'Brien, he goes like, "Oh, I've ordered brand new darts for us. Yeah, like, <laughs> they'll be here next week." And it's like, if my changing clone clone ordered a bunch of shit on Amazon and then I got like back, I'd be so right. mad. Bashir's in horrible credit card debt. His credit score right. is tanked. He's never going to be able <laughs> to afford. That nice DS9, uh, like, top-floor apartment. <laughs> right. right. Like, ruined my Federation credit score. He's like, I uh, finished all those custom uh, leather pieces that you'd uh, ordered. Uh, <laughs> right. Interestingly. Uh, <laughs> she's just like, uh, okay. Yeah, it's like, all the changelings want to do is, like, cause war. But, like, what if there's that one changeling that's just, like... I'm gonna use the ninth punch on your coffee card, mm-hmm. and just like just do like all of the like most minute and like it's a dick shit. move because the changeling has to like fake even eating it. Mm-hmm. So right. like he gets the meatball sub, but he doesn't even eat it. Bashir, <laughs> what an asshole! Bashir went to go to the bathroom, and there was no toilet paper on the roll, and no toilet paper within reach. Right. Changelings don't go to the bathroom. He just right. flushed all of it. He just flushed or, it like, all. Or like Sonic showered all of it just to be a dick. <laughs> he like oh. hired somebody to come take a double decker in Julian Bashir's <laughs> toilet because <laughs> like he can't do it himself. <laughs> he he made sure that like all of the batteries for the fire alarms were like almost out. So they, would, quite, so they would right. run like they'd run out of battery when he got home. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. No. Inconsequential changeling is my favorite Deep Space Nine character. You heard it here first. <laughs> I mean, he was on. He was there to go on a suicide mission. So, like, why not screw everything up before you leave? Right. Yeah, because changelings are dangerous and bad. They're very bad, though. Full of trouble. Meanwhile, back in the internment camp, um, we get a bunch of, like, awesome Klingon stuff going on. Because Martok's there. They killed the Martok changeling at the beginning of the season. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, he only has one eye. Dylan is making a face where he is covering one eye, menacing. (laughs) The Martok face. Um, And Martok is there, and Worf is like, oh, General, like, you're still alive. Like, this is great. This is good news. And then Worf ends up getting, like, roped into Jim Hadar Fight Club. <laughs> it's, I, I mean, it's cool because, like, it's, like, Serge is like, oh, you know, you need to be the distraction for what Garrick is going to be doing. But I think it's also, like, really, really cool because it shows that the Jim Hadar are just more than soldiers. They are still soldiers, but they have a little bit more to them. 
which is really cool. Dylan, Forrest, I see both of you shaking your heads up and down. Dylan, go. There was this excellent episode, and I don't remember where it falls in the series, where the Jem'Hadar, like, they end up on their, on, like, a planet or something, and they're, like, learning about, that they have a culture, that they're more than just these empty war machine things. Um, right. And which is very cool. And so it's cool to see another evolution of that to see them working. I mean, not that like being POW wardens is a civilian job, but it's pretty close um, or closer than being like a straight up soldier. Uh, and you see that in a lot of like uh, the relationship between the POW wardens and POWs and a lot is in victory and bridges over the river Kwai. Like it's an interesting relationship. And so it's cool to see it here um, because it is even a callback to a, a pretty cool movie called Victory. I don't know if you guys have heard of it or seen it, where uh, in World War One, Pele is in it and Sylvester Stallone are in it. Um, the German national uh, football soccer team plays against a bunch of uh, prisoners in a POW camp and a game of soccer. And yeah, and the, the French... The French resistance is going to break them out and they decide to stay and finish playing the game and beat the German nationals. And then like, it's, it's a cool movie, but like, this is a similar thing. Like, oh, we've, we've kidnapped like this badass Klingon fighter. Let's make him fight our dudes. And it's like, it's weird because like, I don't know, like I, I keep getting every time I've watched it, I've watched it two or three times now, this pair of episodes, I get a bunch of like, like boxing movie callbacks because you get like Martog in Worf's corner and he's like he's like it's it's almost like he's he's bringing the bucket he's like doing the ice like it's almost that good you know it's very very close yeah and it's it's so neat to this camp is run in a very odd way right the Jem'Hadar are around they're not like executing people necessarily maybe one or two but uh it's not like mass murders it's just like go in your cell hang out we're keeping you alive as prisoners for reasons uh also by the way here's the fight ring where we have nightly klingon on jim hadar battles and so like wharf shows up just ready to brawl martok's got to you know there's that mentorship boxing i like that kind of metaphor for what they're doing but you know they've also got this job to do and and between all of these interesting, personal, just heavy things kind of converge here, because Worf is connected with the thought-long-dead hero. Julian Bashir is there, surprisingly, and Garrick has to deal with, surprise, some daddy issues. Yes, he does actually mention that. Like, L- literal it's his daddy dad. issues, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's like, no, you're my father. I know you're my father. He's like, we can we can talk about it. And he's like, no, I must tell you all of the people I need killed. Please take care of all of my petty grievances. He <laughs> never admits that he's his dad either. Like, Tane just continues to refu- like refute it. He won't right. say the words, but he does recall memories with young Garrick. So, like, there's confirmation in that, but he will never say the words, you are my son. Yeah, they held hands. Well, and I, I think, was it, Katie, was it you or was it Steph, I think, in another episode that was saying that in the books, it's pretty heavily implied that the housekeeper that you meet when he goes to visit him the first time is is likely his mother. Right, when the, the episode, um, oh, I'm horrible with episode names, when they take the Romulan fleet into the Gamma Quadrant. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, like, yeah, Tane yeah. is like, yeah, I might just have her killed, I don't know, and he, like, looks at Garrick, you know. 
Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm going to kill your mom. That's, yeah, that's, it's pretty heavily, uh, it's in the books, and it's, that's kind of one of Andrew Robinson's personal notes was where that came from, was that, yeah, Tane was his father, who would never admit it, Mila's his mother, who would also never admit it, and both of those things were, for Tane, right, spy master of the Cardassian Empire, uh, both of those were, uh... Weaknesses. Da- yes, thank you. They were, well, they and it were, gives you such an insight into Garrick, knowing that, like, this this person who lies compulsively and finds sport in it, but it's like he was raised by people who wouldn't even acknowledge him and would come up with stories as to why he was associated with them, and, like, it's, it's beyond pathological at that point. It's generational. <laughs> <laughs> That's a trait you don't want to get. No. Don't. <laughs> Just that, that constant need of... I mean, he's constantly trying. The reason he's so good at everything is because he's constantly trying to prove his own worth. And it's it's sad to see it go to that point. And then you even get to see him facing facing down like a, a real fear and a claustrophobia, something that you wouldn't expect a spy to have. Yes, because while Worf is off claiming honor against Jim Hadar after Jim Hadar after Jim Hadar, Garrick is crawling through the ducks. Uh, John McClane style, <laughs> trying to science a thing so they can. He's trying to get like a relay set up so that like they can, they can talk use... to the runabout without using communicators. Yeah, so they can use the runabout, which and is forest you mentioned. Yeah, conveniently parked right outside the internment camp. Yeah, there's, there's like Winnebago parking out back. The Jimmer are just great valets. It's like, yep, we're taking you and your ship to this asteroid planet, and it's just going to be parked out back. Uh, keys are in the ignition when you want to get out of here. Uh, <laughs> We're not going to strip it for any resources. We're going to leave it exactly the way it is. Yep. I mean, and filled up the, the tank. Are, are a blood object. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> they lack the subtlety <laughs> to think of things like that. So, yeah, and then I think you get this, like, really cool moment with Worf as he's fighting the leader of the Jem'Hadar. And... It's to the point where, you know, like, the Jim Hadar is winning. Worf is, like, you know, he's gone 7-0. and He's, like, going for that heavyweight belt, right? And he's refusing to tap out. And he's refusing to tap out, even though he is getting his ass ticked. And then the Jim Hadar does something completely uncharacteristic, and he yields. He says, I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to fight this man anymore. And it's kind of... I, I don't know, like, it, it comes back, like, in a couple episodes after this, where it's, like, revealed that, like, the Jemardar do have, like, this very warped sense of duty and warped sense of honor, especially compared to the Klingons, because, you know, honor is kind of, like, the baseline for Klingon culture for everything, you know? And it's just, I don't know, I thought it was very interesting to see that the Jemardar were more than just, you know... The Vorta just pointing and saying, well, and do this, do that. So it's against even what the Vorta wants to happen. Right. The Vorta keeps asking him to kill Worf and to end it. And the Jem'Hadar, again, at that point is like, you know, uh, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. This 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 guy's proven himself to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to do this. And it's one of several times throughout the series where we see the, the Jem'Hadar um, soldiers kind of stand up to the Vorta. And show that they're not these mindless 
monsters that they were made out to be earlier in the series that you know they there is something that they could do that would be beyond what they've been manufactured to be which is you know it's nice but Worf is too like rage blind to even see it in the moment and even several episodes later when he's like recalling the experience about you know wanting to throw the match and wanting to die and wanting to give up he doesn't even mention that the Jem'Hadar spared him (laughs) So it's just, it's interesting to see that from kind of both sides. Yeah, because this, this battle, this, you know, Worf in the ring starts off with him, you know, not doing great against the, you know, he wins against the first Jem'Hadar, but he takes a beating, and he's like, ah, that's all you've got, trying to be the tough guy in the, the Jem'Hadar first, uh, Ik-Atika. Um, the first is like, ha, that was our youngest and weakest uh, Jem'Hadar. <laughs> Surprise, you got some work ahead of you. And, uh, you know, he keeps just getting beat up. He keeps getting beat up. And this idea that it's it's Worf's, you know, spirit or the spirit of Kalos or this this drive within him that he cannot be defeated. At the end, that it's such a great line where he says, I cannot defeat this Klingon. All I can do is kill him and that no longer holds my interest. And it's just such a great view into the Jem'Hadar. It's a testament to Worf. And it's just just signal that, you know, there's there's this really tough, physical, powerful way to to overcome this challenge. But it's also really neat how Garrick is going through his own crap in the walls of the in the walls of this uh, prison here. And uh, and, you know, that's equally as much of a challenge and, and of interest. And with that, Garrick, as he's battling his claustrophobia and trying to save everyone and get them out, there's sympathy. There's the same sympathy that Bashir is extending to Worf for his physical injuries. Bashir is extending to Garrick and Martok and Worf are also extending to Garrick with this mental um, battle he's been fighting. And I, I don't know, I was kind of caught off guard because when I think of Klingon, I think of honor and chest beating and nothing is, I'm afraid of nothing. I can do anything and small spaces and darkness, whatever. But they acknowledge and they even say the line, something to the effect of like, it takes a brave man to face his own demons and just Mm -hmm. kind of honor that. I was, I thought that was really kind of remarkable. Um, And with that, there's support in there that uh, with, with the support from everyone, Garrick is able to kind of pull himself up, finish the job, and ultimately kind of save the day, get them to the transporter, just as Worf would, would have been shot by that Vorta for not yielding. They make a really big point of talking about how Garrick is the only one that can do this. They talk about how Tane had d- was doing did this before, because he had the skills that nobody else had it, and... They also talk about how the Klingons, like, ritual sacrifice if there's no hope of escape and no more enemies to defeat. And they they explain that to Garrick, and Garrick is like, oh, well, if Garrick can't do it, if he can't face his own fear and beat it, then there is no hope, like, they are done for. Um, and it's, it's cool to see the cultures mirror each other across the board here. Even, you know, as they're they're watching him struggle and trying to figure out how do we how do we support him through this, they're they're acknowledging the honesty in that moment, which is something we so rarely get from Garrick, that he literally can't help himself but have this this break in this tiny tube that he's stuck in. 
And then respecting that, you know, he is actually very good at what he does, and the fact that he's very good at what he does, despite having, you know, a claustrophobic episode throughout all of it is, you know, I, I, they see the integrity in that, which is so easy to question in Garrick otherwise. <laughs> right. Seems to be a recurring theme is, I am a simple tailor. Yeah, okay, Mr. Spy. Like, mm. everybody knows. Everybody's in on the secret. And well, to see them support They know this. he's capable of great cruelty. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is something where he was he was very altruistic, even though obviously he himself also gets, you know, transported out and he gets to, to go with them. But, you know, the fact that he was doing it as much for other people as himself was very, very powerful in that moment. And then the big finale uh, is on DS9. Everybody shows up. There are Klingons. <laughs> there are Romulans. There's a bunch of Federation ships. Getting ready for this invasion. Well, because the last message that Worf kind of mm-hmm. spat out across the wormhole was like, gear up! Right. <laughs> right. And Julian, or fake Julian, I should say, has has an evil, evil plan, mwahaha, that is actually, like, quite good. Oh, it's brilliant. scary. <laughs> but he plans to essentially destroy the Bajoran sun and take out all of these ships and pretty much anything that would stand in the way of the and you get some like really cool like science stuff with that and then uh there's one thing that's like really cool I I thought was really cool is Kira is in command of the defiant mm-hmm. and they're like okay well this is the runabout he's in we need to catch him and she's like, okay, accelerate to warp. And they're like, you can't do that in a solar system. And she's like, yeah, watch me. Hold my beer. Here I go. <laughs> oh, man. It was it was very, very cool. I, I thought it was very cool. And I thought it was like, it's a solid plan. Well, and I, I have a question about, you know, fake Bashir. Do we assume that, you know, it was always his, his plan to do this at this exact point in time? Or was he kind of like a, supposed to be a sleeper agent slowly sabotaging the station and then once it became clear that there was an opportunity for the fleet to yeah there was an eventuality that the fleet was going to gather outside the wormhole right mm-hmm. right so like being having a sleeper person on ds9 for like waiting for that contingency to take place and then load up your sun exploding bombs and you go or do we think there was more of a structured plan than that i think i think the timing was coincidence personally mm-hmm. Because, like, he could, uh, it feels like he could have been there for, like, two years, and right. it could he, have played out exactly the same way when those series of events kind of start to pull together. He could have used, like, six coffee punch cards instead of the one. <laughs> Just wasting all of those, all of those free drinks at the, at the replimat. It's really neat because the, some of the timing of this is, uh, right, lucky. Like, when Worf and Garrick are cruising through the nebula and they see what is essentially a, Alpha Quadrant occupation fleet coming. Obviously, the Dominion right. and Gul Dukat have been in cahoots for a little bit because one of the other pieces, you know, the reason the fleet kind of masses here is that the Dominion just comes in through the wormholes like, hey, buddies, we're coming at you. And then they just zip off to Cardassia. And it's one of the most ridiculous scenes in this episode where they're like, okay, guys, gear up to protect the station. Before all the other fleets get here, they're like, what do we got? Well, we got Dukat's Bird of Prey, the Defiant, 
and three runabouts. And we're going to do real good at, at defending the station with, <laughs> with this little fleet. Um, and then they all zip off and Ducat, you know, raises his middle finger at everybody. And, and it's all good because he's the bad guy again. So I think that the changeling must have had an idea of that sequence. But as soon as it became apparent that, oh, the Federation's coming. Oh, the Klingons are here. Oh, the Romulans showed up for some reason. Then it's like, oh wait, I know what I can do. I, you know, maximum havoc is, I think, the rather than min, you know, maximum inconvenience is the changeling what they they do a really good job of making it plausible that that changeling has communications outside of DS Nine through. There's a number of like spy type messages that go through characters that we interact with. And so I think it's it's very possible that he's in direct contact with all of these moving pieces throughout his time on DS9, as well as I think that you, like you have the sandwich scene is like, haha, evil Bashir. But it's also he's gathering information. He's doing the little havoc, uh, flushing all the toilet paper down, clogging the toilets, things to kind of like road bump. But it, it almost works against him, himself. At one point, um, when they, they try to, I can't remember what, they're trying to blow up the wormhole and he, he stops them. I don't, I think it's because he had the information to do it. It wasn't his plan to like make, make sure that happened. He's just like a good sleeper agent. Very good sleeper agent. He is very good doctor and he is very good friend to everybody on Deep Space Nine. Probably. My favorite character on Deep Space Nine. Our man Bashir. <laughs> um, there is one little thing I really want to call to before we wrap up for the evening. When the Romulans show up, the shit-eating grin on Cisco's face, <laughs> where he like puts both his hands on his hips and he's like, I've done it. I've brought peace to the Alpha Quadrant. <laughs> like Everybody is here. Because of me, <laughs> like, it's just a really cool moment um, that I just wanted to call attention to, that's all. Uh, Dylan, Forrest, Katie, Caitlin, full crew tonight, thank you guys so much for your insights to these lovely, lovely episodes. Katie, do you have any closing thoughts before we head on our separate ways through the wormhole? Uh, no, I love that you brought the, the shit-eating grin of Avery Brooks, because when that man smiles and he, he's proud of himself, it just lights up the, the screen. So I'm glad that we got that in there. And again, just another fun, thought-provoking episode from the writers of DS9. Forrest, do you have any closing thoughts this evening? Kira and Jadzia as Team Defiant Beatdown crew is pretty <laughs> awesome. It's, it was, they had short scenes together on the ship, but it's always fun to see Kira in command of that little ship and the just the fun little we're gonna, you know, make these semi you know, make make reference to some of these like touchy questions of sci fi like light speed in a solar system, stuff like that. It's always cool to see kinda like when in Best of Both Worlds they were like, Well, let's just hold out the board cube and call it a day. So it's always fun to see him like Talk about these things where that's uh, that are like classic sci-fi tropes, but that they just you know drop in and and then drop off. Also, uh, would just love to see the and we're going to keep seeing this, but seeing all the ships at the end there and you don't get the battle. It's like oh, when we're going to shoot stuff. 
We're going to shoot stuff. And it's so cool to see it just staged. Dylan, closing thoughts? Uh, I just really want to say that I love uh, when they had uh, Garrick inside of the wall and the, the way the light is hitting his face. It's just <laughs> very cool. Great staging. Uh, I loved the like sound coming from inside the wall and the distress that real Bashir and the rest of them in prison are under that sequence. I just thought was really well done. They really sell the claustrophobia. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's brilliant. It's very good. Caitlin closing thoughts this evening. Uh, one, never trust a Breen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> number two, I, I appreciate that this episode kicks off a whole line of really good Martok content. Right. Because I think, you know, as, as we've seen throughout the two parters of like, TNG we've covered, and now into DS9, Worf is at his best when he's got these other kind of strong Klingon hands around to provide the counterpoint to his own insecurities that he kind of drags around everywhere in his suitcase filled with anxiety-pressed latinum. And it's he's just such a wonderful character because you realize that like the the changeling version of him that we met first was such a dick and Martok is actually uh, such a rich character and I'm I'm so happy that we got the real Martok back. Well thank you all so much for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week. As always you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 2star2trek and until next time to be continued.